Looking at the history of the world, and specifically at the history of revolution or rebellion, it's not so difficult to see a number of sharp distinctions or categories in which they can be sorted. First, there's the obvious distinction between successful and unsuccessful revolts, depending on how you want to choose to classify success. Then there's a sifting you can do based on the raw carnage. How bloody was the uprising? Was it short or long? Large or small? Separatist movement or reformative revolution? There is a plethora of types of insurrection throughout human history, and any person who would undertake, or even entertain to undertake one, had better be familiar with this history. Unfortunately, I am seeing and talking to way too many people who aren't familiar with this history, or worse, think that they are. So let's take a quick look at some of this history, and what major lessons we need to be taking from them as we have another hazardous conversation. Trigger warning disclaimer. Hazardous Conversations pushes rhetorical boundaries for acceptable political discourse. Listening to this program could have the uncomfortable side effect of provoking deep intellectual inquiry into foundational principles of liberty. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, some of this is going to seem like a retread of episode 9, but it is a point that I do not think can be harped on enough. Rebellion without principles leads to worse despotism than that which spurred the original revolt. The French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, Nazi Germany, the Chinese Civil War and later Cultural Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Vladimir Putin are some highlights of this principle in action. I know some might counter by saying that these were popular uprisings fueled by fanatical ideologies. How is that lacking principles? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because this is the first lesson that we need to learn. The difference between sound, enduring, fundamental principles versus emotionally charged, passionate ideology. Now, looking at each of the examples I just mentioned reveals a common thread of demagoguery tapping into deeply rooted dissatisfactions in a populace. They were all full of sloganeering and seemingly endless epigrams, but never any long-lasting and enduring principles of societal governance. Passions were inflamed and rarely checked, but always directed at shifting targets. The bourgeoisie, the aristocrat, the royalist, the Jew, the capitalist, anyone and everyone that allowed a majority to hate and blame a perceived minority within a society. Oh, sure, within some of these movements, there were highly sophisticated efforts to build elaborate frameworks of thought that were used to justify the actions of the mob. But in nearly every case, these apologists had to do Olympian-level mental gymnastics to avoid the plain reason and logic of the long-held principles that they were fighting against. And they always failed. They failed, ultimately, because while there were deep-rooted and passionate grievances at their core, there were not any rational, fundamental principles within them. Now, what do I mean by rational, fundamental principles? Well, many, myself included, would look to them as biblical principles. Fundamental truths which, despite our sinful inclinations, 
prove their truism over and over again. One such fundamental principle is that there is no freedom apart from the law. God created mankind naturally free, but placed that freedom within the boundary of law. When man used that freedom to break the law, he did not find more freedom, but rather more law. In other words, when man abandoned the fundamental principle in order to cast off the supposed constraints on his freedom, it resulted in more constraints and less freedom. Now this pattern is, you might say, habitually human nature. And it is what is played out in nearly all civilizations in recorded human history. The one notable exception is the United States. But even here, we have not been able to completely avoid it over time. Even at our founding, we very nearly succumbed to this pattern several times between declaring our independence and ratifying our Constitution. Everything from attempts to install George Washington as a king to whether the states would remain in any kind of union at all. Anyone that can honestly look at and understand the complexity and tumultuous nature of the founding of our nation and not see the hand of divine providence at work is not to be taken seriously. So, why didn't our nation go the way of so many others in history? What single thing, if it is a single thing, can we point to that made the difference? It is my contention that it has to be the imbuement of an adherence to enduring fundamental principles by men and the women in their lives of exceptional character and fortitude. No, I am not saying that these men were perfect in any way but their principled actions made them exceptional men in the history of the world, and that, in turn, created an exceptional nation in the history of the world. Now, these principles were not vague, abstract notions as many today try to make them. When Jefferson penned the non-exclusive rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, he was not invoking fanciful, nebulous ideas but rather concrete, tried, and tested real things. He not only borrowed from near contemporaries such as Locke, Montesquieu, Hume, and Hobbes, but also from theologians such as Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and the ancients like Aristotle, Socrates, and even Hammurabi. All of the founding fathers were extremely well-versed in the history and literature of all great Western civilizations, from Israel to Egypt to Persia and Greece, Rome to Carthage, and right up through their present English empire. These men had and utilized the sum wealth of human history and experience to incubate and refine the enduring principles that produced the American Revolution not only produced it, but also saved it once independence had been won. See, there were a lot of people, even in the other republics, such as Daniel Shays, who had superficial, ideological understandings of these principles. As a result, these men ultimately chose to abandon those principles when it suited them, all while claiming to be fighting for them. And that is what I'm seeing more and more of today. People who are clamoring for revolutionary action, claiming to want to restore the Constitution, 
but being perfectly willing to work entirely outside of the Constitution, supposedly in order to preserve it. Heck, some people might even accuse me of doing this from time to time. However, as I have tried to make clear over and over again, philosophically, you cannot claim to uphold the Constitution if you are willing to go outside of it in order to do so. Put more bluntly, you cannot use the tools of Satan to advance the kingdom of God. Now look, none of this is saying that our system isn't broken, or more accurately, that it hasn't been corrupted. It's also not saying that we aren't rapidly approaching, if not already there, the time where only extreme measures will be the moral choice in order to preserve our individual liberty. But please, 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 please understand that when it becomes that fight, we will have conceded the ability of the Constitution to prevail. When it becomes that fight, we will have gone full retrograde, winding the rule of law back to base nature. We will be invoking our natural rights articulated in the Declaration because our form of government under the Constitution has become destructive to the ends of securing our natural and unalienable rights. You can hem and haw all you want to about the idea that the Constitution itself isn't the problem, and you'd be right. It is not the Constitution, but rather not following the Constitution that has been the problem. But when a thing has become so thoroughly corrupted as it has, restoration of it becomes an impossibility. The very, very best hope is to wrest control from the corruptors, wipe the slate clean, and rebuild the whole edifice using the original blueprints. Problem is, it will never be rebuilt in its original form simply cannot happen. First, you will have the desire of so many to add fixes to it, term limits, balanced budgets, and so forth. There will be a resumption of the original debates over an inclusion of a Bill of Rights, not as amendments, but as part of the main document. When this happens, how many of our cherished protections will be done away with, and how many new protections will be added? And would we keep such vile and repugnant clauses as the 16th and 17th Amendments? In short, what sort of constitution would end up actually being restored? I'm sorry, but if you are under the delusion that the one we have right now is going to be the one that we end up with on the other side of any new revolution or rebellion, then you are no fan of reason. You are living in a fantasy world that is totally disconnected from the fallen world in which we actually live. I hate to say it, but the same goes for those who advocate for the Article 5 Convention of the States. Now, I love listening and reading to Mark Levin. He has a far vaster knowledge of both legal history and history in general, but I cannot understand his position on this one. There is nothing that can convince me that a Convention of States, once called and seated, could be constrained in any way whatsoever from totally rewriting the entire Constitution. 
This defies both the plain text of the article as well as all known parliamentary procedural rules. Now, for those who don't know what the heck I'm talking about, Article 5 of the Constitution reads, The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution, when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall be shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state, without its consent, be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. So, just for clarification, that last part, referring to the year 1808, basically, you can't, before the year 1808, you couldn't propose an amendment that would alter the three-fifths compromise. And then the second part of that, I'll get to in a second. Now, many of you, I'm sure, know that this article is the one that describes the process for amending the Constitution. And since the Constitution took effect in 1789, all 27 ratified amendments to it have been carried out via the congressional method of proposing. The other method described here and supported by so many is that of a convention of states that would gather for the purpose of, quote, proposing amendments. As of today, according to conventionofstates.com, there are 19 states that have passed resolutions calling for such a convention, an additional six where it has passed one chamber, and 13 more where it is being introduced in this year's legislative session. Although, their last update says March 29th of this year, so who knows what may have happened with those states. Point is, there are enough states with pending legislative activity for it to meet the two-thirds threshold necessary for the convention to take place. Unfortunately, all of the people calling for a convention are either completely ignorant of history, ignorant of parliamentary procedure, intentionally misrepresenting it for one reason or another, or just completely delusional. Likely, some combination thereof. Let's first start with the fact that outside of the plain text of the article, there is absolutely no binding provisions of just how such a convention would operate. None whatsoever. I know people will try to claim that the convention would be limited somehow by the legislatures of each state. Guys, this is a completely fanciful, ahistorical, and maybe outright unconstitutional. The Constitution gives the legislature's power to call for the convention, nothing more. It doesn't say how that convention is to be run, how many delegates each state would have, whether they would vote as individual delegates or as a state. And the only limiting factor that the article has at all, and this applies to the congressional method as well, is that no state can be denied equal representation in the Senate without its own consent. This means that both houses of Congress could pass an amendment that would cause California to have only one senator. They could pass it unanimously, and it could be ratified by 49 states, all except California, meaning it could not be adopted. If California says no, that's it. It's done. 
Now, other than that, there is absolutely no other limitation on what a convention can or can't do or how it can or cannot operate. Saying that it would be limited to only proposing amendments demonstrates a lack of knowledge on both parliamentary procedure and history. It doesn't matter what form of parliamentary procedure is used. A decision which would be wholly up to the delegates, by the way. Amendments can always be offered that completely replace the document being amended. That's right. They can, if the delegates agree to, completely scrap the existing document and start over. Exactly as it happened in 1787. What's that? You, oh, you aren't taught that part of history? That's right. The Philadelphia Convention, as it was called at the time, was originally called for the express purpose of proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation. That was its charter by every state that sent delegates and by Congress, who was supposed to receive and ratify the amendments that the convention produced. But as many of us know, almost immediately upon convening, it became apparent that merely altering the articles would be insufficient and that they need to be totally replaced. There is even evidence to suggest that some called for and attended the convention with this notion preconceived. In any event, once this course was decided and agreed upon by the delegates, it went forward. Now, Rhode Island refused to even participate, not wanting a stronger central government, while two of the three delegates from New York left six weeks into the convention because they saw it as exceeding their authority. Nevertheless, the convention proceeded, and it did so in near absolute secrecy, for fear of word getting out and it being shut down by either the people, the state legislatures, or Congress. It was, for all intents and purposes, a second revolution. It completely defied the charter under which it was called and sanctioned, and then proceeded to completely bypass Congress altogether by including its own approval clause and going straight to the states. So then what happened? Well, the states ratified it. Not all of them, mind you. But they did, and voila! We have a new constitution. Now, friends, there is absolutely no power on earth that can prevent this possibility from repeating itself in a modern-day convention of states. I don't give a rat's fanny what wording any given legislature puts into its resolutions calling for the convention. I don't care what conditions they place on or instructions they give to delegates to the convention. Once assembled, the body of the convention becomes its own master completely free to act however the majority of the members choose to act. They get to set their own rules and, as I mentioned earlier, adopt their own procedures. This is how it is for every type of governing body in Western tradition. Everything from church bodies to major corporations to the United States Congress. Unless bound in some way by its charter document, A governing body under it may and does operate as it sees fit to it. Are you all familiar with the story of how West Virginia became a state? (laughs) It is the greatest political rope-a-dope of all time, in my opinion. 
As many of you likely know, the state of West Virginia used to be part of the state of Virginia. When Virginia seceded at the onset of the Civil War, several counties in the northwestern part of the state wished to remain loyal to the Union. Now bear in mind, this was not a new sudden agitation by this region of the state. They had long held separatist leanings, but now seemed to be the perfect time to act. These counties elected delegates and sent them to the city of Wheeling, where they would discuss their situation. The result was two conventions held over approximately two months, out of which these delegates declared themselves to be the restored government of Virginia, i.e. the legitimate government of the state following secession. They then proceeded to organize themselves with a legislature and executive branch, and they held elections for congressional representatives, sending four congressmen to the House and two senators. Since Congress is just like every other governing body, it gets to make up its own rules, including on who to recognize as members. Had either House of the Congress chosen to not recognize and seat these new members, then they would not have been seated or recognized. And folks, that can still happen today. There is nothing in the Constitution that says any senator or congressman that is elected has a right to actually be a member of Congress. Only Congress gets to decide that. But I digress. After having the federal government recognize the restored government of Virginia and accepting its delegation to Congress, the new restored state government got busy drafting legislation that would, surprise, surprise, create a new state carved out of the existing state of Virginia. Now, this was a critical sequence of events since the Constitution, under Article 4, Section 3, requires that an existing state give its assent to having any part of it carved out to create a new state, as well as the consent of Congress. So once having placed all of the pieces on the board, it was merely a matter of time, moving them all through their progressions until the state of West Virginia was officially admitted to the Union on June 20th, 1863. So, without any statutory or constitutional authority whatsoever to do so, these counties exercised ancient rights of corporation and free association to organize themselves, declare themselves to be the legitimate government of the state of Virginia, and then grant themselves permission to become the new state of West Virginia. And Congress... The president and the Supreme Court and everyone else looked on and pretty much said, yep, perfectly fine, nothing to see here. Now, you can make a fair and valid argument that being in the midst of a civil war, Lincoln and the Congress and others had no problem looking the other way on all this, just as they had on several other constitutional matters like habeas corpus or the First Amendment. But the point that has to be looked at is this. Legal safeguards are only ever as good as those willing to enforce them. And when you have a large enough number of people in positions of power and authority to tip those scales in whichever direction suits them, then any talk of limits or can'ts or constraints of any kind becomes utterly meaningless. Far, far more so when those limits aren't even there to begin with. My friends, please, please understand that I am not saying that a fight is not coming or is not already here. 
I am not saying that stuff isn't going to hit the fan. I am not saying that we should not be preparing for the collapse of our society or to even possibly have to fight with arms against our own government. I am actually of the opinion that it is inevitable. And apparently, at least 30-some percent of gun owners feel the same in a poll that I recently heard. What I am saying is that we need to really understand what is at stake and what will result the further down this path we go. As I hinted at earlier, the more we are pressed into forcefully fighting for our God-given rights and our constitutional republic, the more regressed our politics necessarily becomes. Right now, we are still pressing the appeal to the Constitution, as broken and as corrupt as it has become. If we have to take that appeal to invoke the Declaration, then at the same time, we must recognize the Constitution is dead. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Pandora's box. Unleashing that dragon has no predictable outcome. We could end up with a king, or we could end up as 50 completely separate states, or we could end up as a province of China. Or we could end up not at all, descending into factionized, never-ending civil war. Sound, enduring principles versus emotionally passionate ideology. Looking throughout history, our own and the rest of the world, having and adhering to sound, enduring principles is the only possible hedge against the death and misery and tyranny that emotionally passionate ideology always produces. And make no mistake, Ideology exists at all points on the political spectrum and is subject to the sin of emotionally charged demagoguery. This is not an exclusive problem to the left or the right. It exists wherever people are willing to trade long-held, sound, and enduring principles for short-term ideological satisfactions. Or, as Ben Franklin famously wrote once, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety i want to thank you all for listening and i apologize for the uneven nature of my posting new episodes i've been a little bit busy and i think you all understand if you have enjoyed this podcast i'd ask that you like it leave me a comment and most definitely please share it with others so until next time God be with you all in all that you do, and remember, keep the faith and keep up the fight.